0: It helps if you turn the mic on. Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We have unfinished business in 1 Thessalonians, and so it is to that book we return and to chapter 5 where we will cover verses 12 through 22 before finishing the book next week and then, Lord willing, returning to the book of Matthew. It's been a little while since we've been in Thessalonians, so let me remind you what has been going on, what this letter is all about. Maybe if we were going to hang a banner across the top of it, we would say Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians. He basically gushes over them for the first three or so chapters, and in his gushing over them, in his giving thanks for them, he also assures them of their faith. He wants them to know, verse 4, chapter 1, that they are loved by God and have been chosen by God. Indeed, because the gospel came to them not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul tells them in chapter 2, we know that God's word has been received by you. You can know that you are loved and chosen by God because you received our words, not merely as the words of men, but as they really were the word of God. And it's that word of God that has been at work in you. chapter 4, the scene sort of shifts. And Paul begins to lay out some commands, some instructions for this church. He wants them, mainly if we were just going to have one command over chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5, it would be distinct from the world. He wants this church in Thessalonica, like every church, to be distinct from the world, to be holy. He calls their attention to the need to be holy in regards to their sexuality in regards to their love for one another, holy in their grieving, and holy in their hoping. Those last two have to do with the day of the Lord, which takes up the back part of chapter 4 and the beginning section of chapter 5. Paul tells us that we can grieve with hope because we know that Christ is coming again and that all who have died in Christ will come with him. And all that are here, when Christ returns, will join them in the air as he comes down in his victory march to earth. He turns his attention to sort of the flip side of that day of the Lord in chapter 5 and says, All those who are outside of God's saving grace, all those who reject the rule of King Jesus, will not meet him with jubilation on that day, but they will meet him with terror. Because he will come with judgment Paul then wants to remind the Thessalonians that they are not under judgment, so that when this day does suddenly come, they need not fear. And while they wait, they ought to live lives that are sober, awake to the things of God, awake to the spiritual realities that surround them. He says you can be sober, you can be outfitted with the divine armor, the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of the hope of salvation as you wait. You can wait with hope because, and this is verses 9 through 11, which is going to set up our text today, because, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that's a metaphor for dead or alive. Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It's as if Paul is saying, as the Lord once did to Joshua before the conquest, be strong and courageous. I am with you, and I will bring victory to you. Encourage one another with this. Build one another up. And now in verses 12 through 22, he is going to fill out some ways that we can actually build up one another. In fact, he's going to give us a whole bunch of commands that work together to show us what a healthy church culture looks like. I've tried to think, what is necessary for such a culture to, to be built in a church. Right, what's necessary for us if we are going to obey all of these commands? And of course I'm a Baptist so I wanted it to alliterate. I turned over a lot of things that were a lot of cheesy this week. But this is the best I can do. We want a culture of courage at First Baptist. Now maybe that's too cheesy for you. But I'm hoping that this idea of a culture of courage can be one that stays with us. That that little phrase can be one that we say to one another, to remind one another that God has called us to live in harmony together. That he's called us, and this is your outline, to love our pastors and leaders. To love one another. To love his will. And to love his word. Love our pastors, love one another, love God's will, love his word. Before we get to this grocery list of commands that sort of work together to give us a meal this morning, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises to us. We thank you that when we gather together here, you are in our midst, that as we gather around your word to feast upon it together, you are at that table with us, giving to us the words of life. We pray that we might taste and see once more this morning that you are good. Help us to be changed by this text, nourished by this text, sustained by it, strengthened by it. Build up your church in love this morning through your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 12 and 13 tell us what pastors do and what we ought to do in response to... To them, there are three main things we are told that pastors do. They labor, they lead or rule, and they, I needed another L, lecture. That's probably not the best word. The word in the text is admonish. But if you're looking for the alliteration, again, labor, lead, and lecture. But really, labor, rule, and admonish, we see that first one in The first part of verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. That means for a pastor to labor is to work among and for the congregation. The object of a pastor's work is the flock. Bible pictures pastor as a shepherd at work in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Pastors shepherd the flock and they work among the flock as chief sheep. And that's what they do. They're laborers. They're also leaders or But rulers, you see that in the second part of verse 12, and they are over you in the Lord. This is a a pretty basic understanding of what a pastor does, is that he leads or rules, and uh, Paul lays this out in his qualifications for ministers in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, when he says, An elder must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the idea there is a man must manage his household well and that that headship in his home sort of transfers over to the church as he leads and cares for and manages God's household as a steward. So we see pastors labor, and they lead, and we see, lastly, that pastors admonish. See that in verse 12, the last part? And admonish you. Admonish is sort of an unusual word. It's a good word, but it's fallen on hard times, such that, I mean, I had to look it up. I was like, admonish, what does he mean exactly here? The idea is a loving correction when it's needed. A warning to someone that, That isn't done sort of with a vengeful spirit, but with a humble and hopeful spirit. Admonishment or warning is one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor. Paul speaks of it this way in Colossians 1.28. As Christ we proclaim warning, admonishing, it's the same word, and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so we we see that pastors uh, labor, they lead, and they admonish. Now, what does Paul call us to do in light of that? Let's, Let's read the verses together. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You see, so it's the work that we've described, it's the grounds for what Paul calls us to do which is to acknowledge or respect our pastors and to esteem them very highly. And a lot of you are going, this is really self-serving at this point, is it not? This is the application section and so there's a a temptation to go a lot of different ways. You know, I could say this is the time where I go full Aretha Franklin and say, you know, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know, ask you, you know, respect me and sort of stamp my, my feet, respect your, your pastors, I'm really thankful that there's no need for that, that sort of more intense summons to acknowledge and esteem your leaders. I think if Paul were writing to First Baptist Church, he might write something like he did earlier in the letter to the Thessalonians. As it relates to acknowledging and esteeming your leaders, I have no need to write you, for you have done excessively well in this. I mean, he might continue, In fact, you have been lavishing so much support and esteem on them that your pastor cannot stop eating cookies. I I do want to take the opportunity to just say thank you on behalf of myself and the other pastor elders here, for how well you have done at this, showing respect to your leaders and esteeming us very highly. And I have no doubt that the same support I have received and the other pastors and elders have received has also been extended to the other leaders in our church. I bet that if you asked any of the deacons here, that they would tell you they have received much support and encouragement from this congregation as a whole. And my, my hope is that this application of acknowledging and esteeming leadership would extend beyond our pastors, beyond our deacons, and unto all our congregational leaders on down to Sunday school teachers such that we are submitting ourselves to those people who have been put in positions of leadership over us. Submission is an important part of the Christian life. Acknowledging and esteeming those that the Lord has put over us is important and it takes courage. It really does take courage to to follow the leader unless you're not really following the leader. It's really easy, you know, if you're ever, if you're, we're going to use the game, follow the leader. You guys know that if you're kids. Kids, you can tell your parents about it later if they're unsure. It's really simple. You follow the leader. Where the leader goes, you go. And as long as you want to go where where the leader goes, things are good. You know, the leader goes into a restaurant you want to eat at, you're, you're happy to follow along. The leader wants to to go into a, a store to shop or something you're not into shopping Eh, you don't really want to follow or maybe uh you know earlier this week ashley was getting me a ladder from i don't know where some, somewhere i think that he owns it, unless he was stealing the ladder and he doesn't know any of this part this is all in my head he's out there it's wet and it's very very muddy and i have very very white-soled shoes on at the time and he's out there walking around through the mud. And I think to myself, I don't want to go through the mud. But I was following him, and so I walked down into the mud. He had no idea about my suffering. I mean, his mind is really blown right now. Here's the point. If we are only willing to follow our leaders when we want to, we are not really following them, and they are not really our leaders. We are still ruling ourselves. It takes courage to trust those that the Lord has set over you in life. And it's really important to do. It's really important to follow our leaders and to esteem them for their work, for their labor, their, their leading, and their admonishment. Paul reiterates this, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so, church, let us continue to acknowledge and esteem our leaders. One more thing before we move on to the next section, the first one is love your pastors, is notice what Paul assumes here. Paul assumes that Christians are in union with a church and that they are under leadership. He assumes that if you are a Christian, you belong to a church and you have submitted yourself to leaders. My wandering sheep Christian, if you believe in Jesus... And you do not formally belong to a church. And you have not submitted yourself to pastors somewhere. You are in sin. And you need to repent. The, the testimony of the New Testament is that Christians belong to churches and follow faithful shepherds. Paul gives this injunction in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Again, he's assuming you have them. And submit to them, because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In order to obey the command to acknowledge leaders, respect leaders, and esteem leaders, you have to belong to a church you have to have leaders don't be a wandering sheep join a church in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ you also notice this little phrase here at the end of 13 it says be at peace among yourselves and while peace is something we of course want to characterize all of our relationships I think Paul has in mind here particularly the relationship between leaders and other Christians in the same church and he has it there because leadership can be a great source of division. Authority can be a great sort of pressure point for the evil one to press in on to split people apart. Because, especially in our culture, we are taught that authority is always bad. That authority is always abused. And that to be in submission is to be enchained. That's a lie. The Bible says that authority is good. Of course, it can be abused and misused. But the Bible teaches us that authority is good. That God's authority is good. And one of the foundational lies that we have believed since the Garden is that the authority over us is bad. And that it's better for us to exercise authority over ourselves. To rule ourselves. We want to be the only authority. our lives i mean is that not the sin of adam and eve i know god said don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but i know better than he does god you're not going to tell me what to do i'm going to do what i want i'm going to rule myself i'm going to reject your authority paul says to be at peace because he wants leaders and followers, pastors and congregants to exist in a harmonious relationship with one another. Chaos reigns when leaders do not lead and when followers do not follow. Must be willing to follow God's design for the church, which is really built upon his design for the family. So let's pick up the family metaphor. It does permeate Thessalonians. Paul sets himself up as a mother who nurtures Christians at one point and then a father who strengthens them at another. Think of it like this. Uh, Our leaders in the church are like fathers. They're for our good. We ought to listen to them rather than rebelling against them. We want to play the part of holy sons and daughters. Not downright rotten teenagers. No offense, teenagers. Love you. I'm sure most of you are holy and obedient to your parents. It was just an illustration. We want to have the courage to give authority in our lives to our pastors and others that the Lord has set over us and we want to love that authority such that we are peacemakers rather than troublemakers we are to love our pastors and we're to love one another look at verse 14 and we urge you brothers admonish the idol Encourage the faint-hearted. help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the first word for the congregation here is we urge you brothers to admonish the idol. Remember what that word is. It means to correct, warn lovingly. Who are the idol? Well, the idol here sort of two categories Uh, one could be those who are just out of step with the church the word literally means disorderly and so you have this image of soldiers and one of one of them is, is put out of line another option is it's those who are lazy and refusing to work in Corinth and so Paul has already addressed this issue a little bit back in verse 11 when he called the Thessalonians to work and we see in a subsequent letter, 2 Thessalonians, that people in Thessalonica refusing to work is a big deal. They're taking advantage of the church. They're going, Jesus is returning soon, therefore I don't need to work. And what happens is, you know, you don't work, you run out of food, and you run down to your friend's house, and you knock on the door. Hey, uh, no, no food in my house, could I have some of yours? And They're part of the church, and so yeah, they, they give them some food. Well, then, you know, dinner time rolls around later that day. You know, I go to somebody else's house in the church. I haven't been working and I'm not eating. And, hey, what, what are you guys having for dinner tonight? And they share their, they're taking advantage of the church. And so Paul says, the one who doesn't work shall not eat. And so the idol here in our verse, I think, actually probably works in both directions. Those who have been uh, lazy and are refusing to work, as well as those who are sort of spiritually apathetic. Paul is calling us to admonish them. And you'll notice this is the same word from verse 12. Something our leaders do, they admonish us. Right? And yes, leaders are to lead the way in admonishment. And the congregation is also responsible for admonishing one another. We are responsible, all of us, for ministry including the ministry of correction. Luke chapter 17, verse 3 says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It takes courage to admonish your friends. And yet we are called to it. And I know it takes courage, because I've been on the other end of sort of the the inquiry. Pastor... I really, can you come and share the gospel with my friend? Or, or Pastor, can you can you come and offer this? My, my friend is caught in sin. Can you come and correct them? Now I would say, well, it's your friend. It's your ministry. I'm, I'm happy to equip you for the work of ministry, like Ephesians 4 teaches me to. But it's your ministry, not mine. And I know it might be scary to offer admonishment. But it's something you must do. You must rebuke your brothers and sisters in Christ. We we want to have courage to admonish one another. Next thing we see is that we are to comfort or encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted is a word here. It's literally like two words smashed together that means little soul we're supposed to help those who are, are little in soul. Faint-hearted could apply to a wide range of people that are crestfallen. Those who are wearied with grief. Boiling over with fear or exhausted from many trials. That so we are called to build them up, to, to lift them up. And what's necessary if we are to encourage the faint hearted. Is for us to pay attention to them and to think of ways that we might encourage them. Cards, messages, prayers, calls, meals. Uh, Sometimes what somebody needs is just a good locker room speech. They need to just be told, "Hey, keep fighting. The kingdom is coming. Victory is close." I mean, I watched a bunch of those this week with, with Nick Saban retiring. And then halftime pumping guys up and like, man, I'm ready to run through a wall. Sometimes that's what somebody needs. They need you to encourage them, to lift up their chins, to tell them, take heart and keep fighting. Comfort, encourage the faint-hearted. And help the weak. Help the weak. The weak here could be those who are physically weak, those who are financially weak those who are spiritually weak. And each one would have its own needs and ways we can address those. Maybe somebody needs help preparing meals or rides from one place to another. Maybe they need financial help with budgeting or groceries. Maybe spiritually, maybe they just need a friend, somebody to hold them accountable and help them fight against besetting sins. We are to help the weak. I saw a great video this week of an older couple ascending what amounted to a mountain of stairs. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, well, usually I'm pretty healthy. The last month hasn't been great. But <laughs> I feel like, man, I might have a hard time getting up these stairs. And I was watching the video, and what, it was just taking them forever. Their pace was like that of a sloth. And, and the woman has her hand on the rail. She's bracing herself on the rail and then she's stabilizing herself with one foot, while her husband bows down and picks up the opposite foot and sets it up on the stair in front of her. And then she, she hoists herself up with the, the leg that works and the arm that works, and that's one step. And I watched the video, for, you know, I don't have a long attention span, so I watched it for a little while, though. It was like a minute, a full minute of this. I thought, man, that's incredible commitment and love. That's what it looks like to to help the weak, church. You want to be those who are committed to helping the weak. The courageous pick up the weak instead of preying upon them. And the key to, to all of this, Paul gives us at the end of verse 14, is that we would be patient with them all. You see, there's no illusions here. Paul recognizes that everybody is not the same. And so when he calls us to love one another, he recognizes he's calling different people to love different people. So, you know, the church is like a box of chocolates. All different sorts. Some have a soft center, some have a hard center, and some are nuts covered in chocolate. Right? You just don't know who you're interacting with, and yet you are called to love them and to be patient with all of them. It's been said, patience tried is love applied. Patience tried is love applied. Brothers and sisters, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. And you can be patient with them all because God has been patient with you, Christian. His kindness was patient enough to lead you to repentance. He has continued to love you and is committed to never forsaking you even though you sin and fall and fail over and over again. He never turns his back on you. He he comes over, he helps pick you up and put one foot in front of the other again. We can be patient with others because the Lord... Has been patient with us. Next, as we love one another, we see in verse fifteen that we are to see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There was a great Snickers commercial a few years back in. Uh, Danny Trejo. Do you guys know who Danny Trejo is? He's just a bad-to-the-bone character actor. He always plays a tough guy. He's got Undertaker long hair, Hulk Hogan-like muscles, and Post Malone-like tattoos. They're everywhere. He's covered in them. And he is cast in the role of Marsha Brady. He stands in for her in a famous scene from The Brady Bunch. And so he's standing in the living room, he's got a piece of tape on his nose, a vest, no shirt underneath of the vest, you know, just looking swole, an ax in one of his hands. And Carol Brady says, Marsha, what happened? He says in his deep gravelly voice, Peter hit me with a football. I can never go to the dance like this. He I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. He says, eye for an eye. That's what dad always says. His father says, "I never said that, honey." At which point Danny Trejo brings the axe down onto the table and shouts, "Shut up! It's time to teach Peter a lesson." So whenever you were thinking repaying evil for evil, grab a Snickers. You're not you when you're hungry. That was the tagline, right? They they gave Danny Trejo a Snickers and he turned back into regular Marsha. That's actually not the point of the illustration. <laughs> Though if that helps you, you're welcome to try it. No, the point is, it brings up a common misunderstanding. Right? Danny Trejo, as Marsha Brady says, an eye for an eye, right? And what he's saying is, I want my pound of flesh as vengeance for what's happened to me. But, friends, eye for an eye is not about exacting vengeance. It applies to criminal wrongdoing in the Old Testament and actually limits injustice. It limits heaping up evil upon evil. It, if we were to sort of translate it, we might say, the punishment fits the crime. That's what it means. I think unfortunately, too many of us, when we are wronged, act like Danny Trejo. When somebody wrongs us, we slam the axe through the table. We say, shut up. I don't want to hear anything. It's time to teach the person that wronged me a lesson. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way of the cross. It is cowardice. It is to say, I don't really trust what God has said. God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So to trust God when evil is committed against us means that we don't exact our own revenge. Because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has borne the wrath of all sins or will punish all sins at his return. The Lord will have his vengeance and so we need not take it. It is unbelief to try and seek your own vengeance. We can trust that God will right every wrong. We can seek good for one another and not evil. I mean, we can follow Jesus' example. While we were yet sinners, his enemies, doing evil to him, Christ died for us we're all rebels against a holy god we have all earned his wrath poured out on us in hell stretched across in eternity in torment that's what we've earned that's what we've deserved and yet god sought our good god the father sent god the son and the power of god the holy spirit to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. Jesus died on the cross in the place of all who will repent of sin and trust in him. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. He sought our good. We put our faith in him. We get what only Christ deserves, and He takes what we deserve. If this is how God has loved you, Christian, if this is how God has loved the church gathered here at First Baptist, how then can we not seek the good of our brothers and sisters? How could we possibly do evil to those for whom Christ has died? May it never be. Our fellow church members are our family members. We are bound by divine blood, by the water, by the word, by the bread, by the wine. We are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we are united to one another. Therefore, we seek the good of one another. If there's someone that you are not right with, you need to reconcile. You need to seek their good. You're part of the family of God. Non-Christian You can be a part of this family. You can have the good that God offers to you if you will repent of your sins and trust Christ. We're called by this passage to love our pastors, to love one another, and to love God's will. Look with me at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God? That you would rejoice always, that you would pray continually, and that you would give thanks in all circumstances. This passage calls us to refuse an Eeyore mentality. Y'all know Eeyore's the downcast donkey from Winnie the Pooh. Always, I think he has a rain cloud following him around. My Eeyore voice is not much better than my Bane voice, so I'm not going to try it. But he's a downer. A very pessimistic character. And we are called as Christians to reject that Eeyore mindset. We are to be those who are marked by joy, gladness, happiness. But it is not a happiness that is fleeting or trivial. It's one that is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we we read that, rejoice always. And if you're like me, you have the question, how? How can I rejoice always? And this, just caveat, this does not mean that you're never sorry or sad, that you never cry, that, that you're never down. But what it means is, is you, you have an ultimate joy that isn't tied to circumstances, but to Christ Jesus. So well, how do I rejoice always? How can I be, even when I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing like the Apostle Paul? Here, here's the answer. Paul gives us the answer, I think. Rejoice always, and I would go, I would just put in parentheses, how? Verse 17. By praying without ceasing. What kind of prayers, Paul? Thankful prayers. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. You see that? How we are led to joy is by being in communication with God through prayer and focusing our attention on what God has done for us. Filling our hearts up with gratefulness rather than grumbling. And of course we want to give thanks for all sorts of things. Clothes on our back, the roof over our heads, a meeting place where we can gather together in the name of Jesus. We want to thank God for our health when we have it, for for our loved ones. Yes, give him thanks and praise. Good, itemize those things in a, in a journal. But always recognize all of those things can be taken from you. Our gratitude is ultimately not rooted in circumstances that change, but in the God who never does. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the source of of our joy. We can rejoice always because Jesus belongs to us, and we belong to him and to one another. We can rejoice always because we know that we are headed for an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable, kept in heaven for us. And that Jesus Christ is going to make earth into heaven when he returns. There's a kingdom coming, and so we can rejoice always. We can pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. When Paul, sometimes people get hung up on the pray continually part here, pray always. But He doesn't mean to say that you should 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 60 seconds a minute, be praying or you're in sin. We understand he's saying something like, you know, you might say, Justin always drinks coffee. What you mean by that is not that I constantly have a cup of coffee pressed to my lips, but that daily, as part of my usual routine, as part of my instincts, I'm going to have coffee in the morning. I'm probably going to have some in the evening. When Lucas pokes his head in my office and says, coffee, I'm most definitely going to say yes. And sometimes I'm even going to have it at night love coffee marks me but i'm not always i'm not drinking it right now when paul says to pray continually what he means is that we should be a people of prayer that prayerfulness should be our natural disposition let me try and say it this way prayer is to be a feature of your life not an interruption of it Prayer is to be a feature of your life, not a glitch. You want to be joyful always? Make sure that prayer is a feature of your life, and not just any prayer. Grateful prayer for what God has done. Prayer that leads you to say, great is thy faithfulness. Prayer that that leads your heart to sing, how great thou art. Paul is calling us here to a culture of courage. Calls us to love our leaders, to love one another. Calls us to love God's will. We rejoice in every circumstance not just because of gratitude, but because we trust God's will in our life. We recognize that God's providence is holding us fast. And that allows us to rejoice no matter what comes through the door of life. Love what Spurgeon says on this. This It's a quote you're probably going to hear from me a lot of times. says, remember this, Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, then divine love would have put you there. God's great love for you has you exactly where He wants you right now. That doesn't mean He's not going to move you somewhere else, He probably will. It does mean that wherever you are, you can trust Him. Wherever you are, you can rejoice. Spurgeon also said, I've learned to kiss the wave that casts me against the rock of ages. We can rejoice always. Pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. So we are to love our pastors, love one another, love God's will. And lastly, we are to love God's word. Look at verse 19. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The big picture of these verses is easy. This is all about how we hear God's word together. And it's clear that we are to test whatever we hear by God's word, like Bereans, simple, straightforward. Where it gets not so simple, is when we try to define this term prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I'm kidding, kidding. There, prophecy is a very broad category in scripture. If you want to think, this is how I think about it, it might be for better or worse. It's a very broad category, and it has a bunch of different buckets inside of that category. So one of the buckets might be, prophecy might be called predicting the future, right? In another side, there's all kinds of buckets in between. And another bucket might be random ecstatic utterances. And yet, in another bucket, it can just be the interpretation of God's word, Or a public address, much like a sermon. That's what's in view when Paul talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says that we should seek to prophesy, he's talking about exegeting scripture there, in order to build up the church. And that's how prophecy, I believe, is functioning in this text. So the broad definition, I don't know if I said it or not, broad definition of prophecy, what God has said through the mouths of his people. And then in our particular text, we have prophesying, the art of prophesying, being tantamount to preaching God's word. And so, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we are to test it. We are to be ready to reject that which is not consistent with God's word or God's will, to reject that which is not consistent with sound doctrine, and to receive that which is for our edification. Right? We're not to despise the preaching of God's Word, but we are to test it. I hope that you all are testing me weekly. That You're, you're looking in your Bible to see if these things are so. Paul calls us to know how to use a fire extinguisher. If you have a, an NIV, this, this language, do not quench the Spirit. I think they actually bring that across, do not put the Spirit's fire out. And what they're doing is they're helping you to see this sort of imagery that the word quench is meant to convey. Holy Spirit's often associated with fire throughout the Bible. Pentecost, right? We see Spirit show up. Fire. Jesus says, he's gonna, or John says Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the idea here is, as Paul says, have your fire extinguisher, but don't put out the fire that comes from the Holy Spirit. Test things so that If the fire is not from the Holy Spirit, but from hell, you're ready to put it out. Does that make sense? We are to be a discerning people. We are to love God's word and to make sure that which we are hearing really is God's word. We want to submit ourselves to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would indeed set us ablaze with a love for God and with the courage to obey commands like this. Let's pray that God would build a culture of courage here at First Baptist Church of Waynesboro. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us have chosen us, have brought the good news of the gospel to us with the Holy Spirit, with power, and with conviction. We thank you that indeed you are the God of peace and that we have peace with you and one another only because it was purchased at the expense of Jesus' blood. We thank you that you will make sure Jesus gets what he paid for We thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in us right now, making us holy. We thank you that you will keep us until the coming of the Lord Jesus with his kingdom. We thank you that he is faithful and that he will not fail. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.